Chapter fifty five of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter fifty five Major Cavalcanti. Both the Count and Baptistin had told the truth when they announced to Morcerf the proposed visit of the Major, which had served Monte Cristo as a pretext for declining Albert's invitation. Seven o'clock had just struck and monsieur bertuccio according to the command which had been given him had two hours before left for auteuil when a cab stopped at the door and after depositing its occupant at the gate immediately hurried away as if ashamed of its employment the visitor was about fifty-two years of age dressed in one of the green surtout ornamented with black frogs which have so long maintained their popularity all over europe he wore trousers of blue cloth boots tolerably clean but not of the brightest polish and a little too thick in the soles buckskin gloves a hat somewhat resembling in shape those usually worn by the gendarme and a black cravat striped with white which if the proprietor had not worn it of his own free will might have passed for a halter so much did it resemble one such was the picturesque costume of the person who rang at the gate and demanded if it was not at number thirty in the avenue de champs elysees that the count of monte cristo lived and who being answered by the porter in the affirmative entered closed the gate after him and began to ascend the steps the small and angular head of this man his white hair and thick gray moustache caused him to be easily recognized by baptistin who had received an exact description of the expected visitor and who was awaiting him in the hall therefore scarcely had the stranger time to pronounce his name before the count was apprised of his arrival he was ushered into a simple and elegant drawing-room and the count rose to meet him with a smiling air ah my dear sir you are most welcome i was expecting you indeed said the italian was your excellency then aware of my visit yes i had been told that i should see you to-day at seven o'clock then you have received full information concerning my arrival of course ah so much the better i fear this little precaution might have been forgotten what precaution that of informing you beforehand of my coming oh no it has not but you are sure you are not mistaken very sure it really was i whom your excellency expected at seven o'clock this evening i will prove it to you beyond a doubt oh never mind that said the italian it is not worth the trouble yes yes said monte cristo his visitor appeared slightly uneasy let me see said the count are you not the marquis bartolomeo cavalcanti bartolomeo cavalcanti joyfully replied the italian yes i am really he ex-major in the austrian service was i a major timidly asked the old soldier yes said monte cristo you were a major this is the title the french give to the post which you filled in italy very good said the major i do not demand more you understand your visit here to-day is not of your own suggestion is it said monte cristo no certainly not you were sent by some other person 
yes by the excellent abbe busoni exactly so said the delighted major and you have a letter yes there it is give it to me then and monte cristo took the letter which he opened and read the major looked at the count with his large staring eyes and then took a survey of the apartment but his gaze almost immediately reverted to the proprietor of the room yes yes i see major cavalcanti a worthy patrician of lucca a descendant of the cavalcanti of florence continued monte cristo reading aloud possessing an income of half a million monte cristo raised his eyes from the paper and bowed half a million said he magnificent half a million is it said the major yes in so many words and it must be so for the abbe knows correctly the amount of all the largest fortunes in europe be it half a million then but on my word of honour i had no idea that it was so much because you are robbed by your steward you must make some reformation in that quarter you have opened my eyes said the italian gravely i will show the gentleman the door monte cristo resumed the perusal of the letter and who only needs one thing more to make him happy yes indeed but one said the major with a sigh which is to recover a lost and adored son a lost and adored son stolen away in his infancy either by an enemy of his noble family or by the gypsies at the age of five years said the major with a deep sigh and raising his eye to heaven unhappy father said monte cristo the count continued i have given him renewed life and hope in the assurance that you have the power of restoring the son whom he has vainly sought for fifteen years the major looked at the count with an indescribable expression of anxiety i have the power of so doing said monte cristo the major recovered his self-possession so then said he the letter was true to the end did you doubt it my dear monsieur bartolomeo no indeed certainly not a good man a man holding religious office as does the abbe busoni could not condescend to deceive or play of a joke but your excellency has not read it all ah true said monte cristo there is a postscript yes yes repeated the major yes there there is a postscript in order to save major cavalcanti the trouble of drawing on his banker i send him a draft for two thousand francs to defray his travelling expenses and credit on you for the further sum of forty-eight thousand francs which you still owe me the major awaited the conclusion of the postscript apparently with great anxiety very good said the count he said very good muttered the major then sir replied he then what asked monte cristo then the postscript well what of the postscript then the postscript is as favorably received by you as the rest of the letter certainly the abbe busoni and myself have a small account open between us 
i do not remember if it is exactly forty-eight thousand francs which i am still owing him but i dare say we shall not dispute the difference you attach great importance then to this postscript my dear monsieur cavalcanti i must explain to you said the major that fully confiding in the signature of the abbe busoni i had not provided myself with any other funds so that if this resource had failed me i should have found myself very unpleasantly situated in paris is it possible that a man of your standing should be embarrassed anywhere said monte cristo why really i know no one said the major but then you yourself are known to others yes i am known so that proceed my dear monsieur cavalcanti so that you will remit to me these forty-eight thousand francs certainly at your first request the major's eyes dilated with pleasing astonishment but sit down said monte cristo i really do not know what i have been thinking of i have positively kept you standing for the last quarter of an hour don't mention it the major drew an armchair towards him and proceeded to seat himself now said the count what will you take a glass of port sherry or alicante alicante if you please it is my favorite wine i have some that is very good you will take a biscuit with it will you not yes i will take a biscuit as you are so obliging monte cristo rang baptistin appeared the count advanced to meet him well said he in a low voice the young man is here said the valet de chambre in the same tone into what room did you take him into the blue drawing-room according to your excellency's orders that's right now bring the alicante and some biscuits baptistin left the room really said the major i am quite ashamed of the trouble i am giving you pray don't mention such a thing said the count baptistin re-entered with glasses wine and biscuits the count filled one glass but in the other he only poured a few drops of the ruby-coloured liquid the bottle was covered with spiders webs and all the other signs which indicate the age of wine more truly than do wrinkles on a man's face the major made a wise choice he took the full glass and a biscuit the count told baptistin to leave the plate within reach of his guest who began by sipping the alicante with an expression of great satisfaction and then delicately steeped his biscuit in the wine so sir you lived at lucca did you you were rich noble held in great esteem had all that could render a man happy all said the major hastily swallowing his biscuit positively all and yet there was one thing wanting in order to complete your happiness only one thing said the italian and that one thing your lost child ah said the major taking a second biscuit that consummation of my happiness was indeed wanting the worthy major raised his eyes to heaven and sighed let me hear then said the count who this deeply regretted son was for i always understood you were a bachelor that was the general opinion sir 
said the major and i yes replied the count and you confirmed the report a youthful indiscretion i suppose which you were anxious to conceal from the world at large the major recovered himself and resumed his usual calm manner at the same time casting his eyes down either to give himself time to compose his countenance or to assist his imagination all the while giving an under look at the count the protracted smile on whose lips still announced the same polite curiosity yes said the major i did wish this fault to be hidden from every eye not on your own account surely replied monte cristo for a man is above that sort of thing oh no certainly not on my own account said the major with a smile and a shake of the head but for the sake of the mother said the count yes for the mother's sake his poor mother cried the major taking a third biscuit take some more wine my dear cavalcanti said the count pouring out for him a second glass of alicante your emotion has quite overcome you his poor mother murmured the major trying to get the lacrimal gland in operation so as to moisten the corner of his eye with a false tear she belonged to one of the first families in italy i think did she not she was of a noble family of fiesole count and her name was do you desire to know her name oh said monte cristo it would be quite superfluous for you to tell me for i already know it the count knows everything said the italian bowing oliva cosinari was it not oliva cosinari a marchioness a marchioness and you married her at last notwithstanding the opposition of her family yes that was the way it ended and you have doubtless brought all your papers with you said monte cristo what papers the certificate of your marriage with oliva corsinari and the register of your child's birth the register of my child's birth the register of the birth of andrea cavalcanti of your son is not his name andrea i believe so said the major what you believe so i dare not positively assert it as he has been lost for so long a time well then said monte cristo you have all the documents with you your excellency i regret to say that not knowing it was necessary to come provided with these papers i neglected to bring them that is unfortunate returned monte cristo were they then so necessary they were indispensable the major passed his hand across his brow ah perbacco indispensable were they certainly certainly they were supposing there were to be doubts raised as to the validity of your marriage or the legitimacy of your child true said the major there might be doubts raised in that case your son would be very unpleasantly situated it would be fatal to his interests it might cause him to fail in some desirable matrimonial alliance 
oh peccato you must know that in france they are very particular on these points it is not sufficient as in italy to go to the priest and say we love each other and want you to marry us marriage is a civil affair in france and in order to marry in an orthodox manner you must have papers which undeniably establish your identity that is the misfortune you see i have not these necessary papers fortunately i have them though said monte cristo you yes you have them i have them ah indeed said the major who seeing the object of his journey frustrated by the absence of the papers feared also that his forgetfulness might give rise to some difficulty concerning the forty-eight thousand francs ah indeed that is a fortunate circumstance yes that really is lucky for it never occurred to me to bring them i do not at all wonder at it one cannot think of everything but happily the abbe busoni thought for you he is an excellent person he is extremely prudent and thoughtful he is an admirable man said the major and he sent them to you here they are the major clasped his hands in token of admiration you married oliva cassinari in the church of san paolo del monte catini here is the priest's certificate yes indeed there it is truly said the italian looking on with astonishment and here is andrea cavalcanti's baptismal register given by the curate of saravezza all quite correct take these documents then they do not concern me you will give them to your son who will of course take great care of them i should think so indeed if he were to lose them well and if he were to lose them said monte cristo in that case replied the major it would be necessary to write to the curate for duplicates and it would be some time before they could be obtained it would be a difficult matter to arrange said monte cristo almost an impossibility replied the major i am very glad to see that you understand the value of these papers i regard them as invaluable now said monte cristo as to the mother of the young man as to the mother of the young man repeated the italian with anxiety as regards the marchesa cosinari really said the major difficulties seem to thicken upon us will she be wanted in any way no sir replied monte cristo besides has she not y yes sir said the major she has paid the last debt of nature alas yes returned the italian i knew that said monte cristo she has been dead these ten years and i am still mourning her loss exclaimed the major drawing from his pocket a checked handkerchief and alternately wiping first the left and then the right eye what would you have said monte cristo we are all mortal now you understand 
my dear monsieur cavalcanti that it is useless for you to tell people in france that you have been separated from your son for fifteen years stories of gypsies who steal children are not at all in vogue in this part of the world and would not be believed you sent him for his education to a college in one of the provinces and now you wish him to complete his education in the parisian world that is the reason which has induced you to leave viareggio where you have lived since the death of your wife that will be sufficient you think so certainly very well then if they should hear of the separation ah yes what could i say that an unfaithful tutor bought over by the enemies of your family by the cosinari precisely had stolen away this child in order that your name might become extinct that is reasonable since he is an only son well now that all is arranged do not let these newly awakened remembrances be forgotten you have doubtless already guessed that i was preparing a surprise for you an agreeable one asked the italian ah i see the eye of a father is no more to be deceived than his heart hum said the major someone has told you the secret or perhaps you guessed that he was here that who was here your child your son your andrea i did guess it replied the major with the greatest possible coolness then he is here he is said monte cristo when the valet de chambre came in just now he told me of his arrival how oh, very well very well said the major clutching the buttons of his coat at each exclamation my dear sir said monte cristo i understand your emotion you must have time to recover yourself i will in the meantime go and prepare the young man for this much desired interview for i presume that he is not less impatient for it than yourself i should quite imagine that to be the case said cavalcanti well in a quarter of an hour he shall be with you you will bring him then you carry your goodness so far as even to present him to me yourself no i do not wish to come between a father and son your interview will be private but do not be uneasy even if the powerful voice of nature should be silent you cannot well mistake him he will enter by this door he is a fine young man of fair complexion a little too fair perhaps pleasing in manners but you will see and judge for yourself by the way said the major you know i have only the two thousand francs which the abbe busoni sent me this sum i have expended upon travelling expenses and and you want money that is a matter of course my dear monsieur Carvacanti. well here are eight thousand francs on account the major's eyes sparkled brilliantly it is forty thousand francs which i now owe you said monte cristo 
does your excellency wish for a receipt said the major at the same time slipping the money into the inner pocket of his coat for what said the count i thought you might want it to show the abbe busoni well when you receive the remaining forty thousand you shall give me a receipt in full between honest men such excessive precaution is i think quite unnecessary yes so it is between perfectly upright people one word more said monte cristo say on you will permit me to make one remark certainly pray do so then i should advise you to leave off wearing that style of dress indeed said the major regarding himself with an air of complete satisfaction yes it may be worn at via regio but that costume however elegant in itself has long been out of fashion in paris that's unfortunate oh if you really are attached to your old mode of dress you can easily resume it when you leave paris but what shall i wear what you find in your trunks in my trunks i have but one portmanteau i dare say you have nothing else with you what is the use of boring oneself with so many things besides an old soldier always likes to march with as little baggage as possible that is just the case precisely so but you are a man of foresight and prudence therefore you sent your luggage on before you it has arrived at the hotel des princes rue de richelieu it is there you are to take up your quarters then in those trunks i presume you have given orders to your valet de chambre to put in all you are likely to need your plain clothes and your uniform on grand occasions you must wear your uniform that will look very well do not forget your crosses they still laugh at them in france and yet always wear them for all that very well very well said the major who was in ecstasy at the attention paid him by the count now said monte cristo that you have fortified yourself against all painful excitement prepare yourself my dear monsieur cavalcanti to meet your lost son andrea saying which monte cristo bowed and disappeared behind the tapestry leaving the major fascinated beyond expression with the delightful reception which he had received at the hands of the count end of chapter 55When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 56 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 56 Andrea Cavalcanti. 
The Count of Monte Cristo entered the adjoining room, which Baptistin had designated as the drawing room, and found there a young man of graceful demeanour and elegant appearance, who had arrived in a cab about a half an hour previously. Baptistin had not found any difficulty in recognising the person who presented himself at the door for admittance. He was certainly the tall young man with light hair, red beard, black eyes and brilliant complexion, whom his master had so particularly described to him. When the Count entered the room, the young man was carelessly stretched on a sofa, tapping his boot with the gold-headed cane which he held in his hand. On perceiving the Count, he rose quickly. "'The Count of Monte Cristo, I believe,' said he. "'Yes, sir, and I think I have the honour of addressing Count Andrea Cavalcanti.' "'Count Andrea Cavalcanti,' repeated the young man, accompanying his words with a bow. "'You are charged with a letter of introduction addressed to me, are you not?' said the Count. "'I did not mention that, because the signature seemed to me so strange.' The letter signed, Sinbad the Sailor, is it not? Exactly so. Now, as I have never known any Sinbad, with the exception of the one celebrated in the Thousand and One Nights. Well, it is one of his descendants, and a great friend of mine. He is a very rich Englishman, eccentric almost to insanity, and his real name is Lord Wilmore. Ah, uh, indeed. Then that explains everything that is extraordinary, said Andrea. He is, then, the same Englishman whom I met at... Ah, uh, yes, indeed. Well, monsieur, I am at your service. If what you say be true, replied the Count, smiling, perhaps you would be kind enough to give me some account of yourself and your family. Certainly I will do so said the young man with a quickness which gave proof of his ready invention. I am, as you have said, the Count Andrea Cavalcanti, son of Major Bartolomeo Cavalcanti, a descendant of the Cavalcanti, whose names are inscribed in the Golden Book of Florence. Our family, although still rich, for my father's income amounts to half a million, has experienced many misfortunes, and I myself was, at the age of five years, taken away by the treachery of my tutor, so that for fifteen years I have not seen the author of my existence. Since I have arrived at years of discretion and become my own master, I have been constantly seeking him, but all in vain. At length I received this letter from your friend, which states that my father is in Paris, and authorizes me to address myself to you for information respecting him. Really, all you have related to me is exceedingly interesting, said Monte Cristo, observing the young man with a gloomy satisfaction. And you have done well to conform in everything to the wishes of my friend Sinbad, for your father is indeed here and is seeking you. The Count, from the moment of his first entering the drawing-room, had not once lost sight of the expression of the young man's countenance. He had admired the assurance of his look and the firmness of his voice, 
But at these words, so natural in themselves, your father is indeed here and seeking you, young Andrea started and exclaimed, My father? Is my father here? Most undoubtedly, replied Monte Cristo. Your father, Major Bartolomeo Cavalcanti. The expression of terror, which for the moment had overspread the features of the young man, had now disappeared. Ah, yes, that is the name, certainly. Major Bartolomeo Cavalcanti. And you really mean to say, monsieur, that my dear father is here? Yes, sir. And I can even add that I have only just left his company. The history which he related to me of his lost son touched me to the quick. Indeed, his griefs, hopes, and fears on that subject might furnish material for a most touching and pathetic poem. At length, he one day received a letter, stating that the abductors of his son now offered to restore him, or at least to give notice where he might be found, on condition of receiving a larger sum of money by way of ransom, your father did not hesitate an instant, and the sum was sent to the frontier of Piedmont, with a passport signed for Italy. You were in the south of France, I think. Yes, replied Andrea, with an embarrassed air. I was in the south of France. A carriage was to await you at Nice. Precisely so, and it conveyed me from Nice to Genoa, from Genoa to Turin, from Turin to Chambéry, from Chambéry to Pont de Beauvaisin, and from Pont de Beauvaisin to Paris. Indeed. Then your father ought to have met you on the road, for it is exactly the same route which he himself took, and that is how we have been able to trace your journey to this place. But, said Andrea, if my father had met me, I doubt if he would have recognized me. I must be somewhat altered since he last saw me. Oh, the voice of nature, said Monte Cristo. True, interrupted the young man. I had not looked upon it in that light. Now, replied Monte Cristo, there is only one source of uneasiness left in your father's mind, which is this. He is anxious to know how you have been employed during your long absence from him, how you have been treated by your persecutors, and if they have conducted themselves towards you with all the deference due to your rank. Finally, he is anxious to see if you have been fortunate enough to escape the bad moral influence to which you have been exposed and which is infinitely more to be dreaded than any physical suffering. He wishes to discover if the fine abilities with which nature had endowed you have been weakened by want of culture, and in short whether you consider yourself capable of resuming and retaining in the world the high position to which you rank entitles you. Sir, exclaimed the young man, quite astounded, I hope no false report. As for myself, I first heard you spoken of by my friend Wilmore, the philanthropist. I believe he found you in some unpleasant position, but do not know of what nature. 
for I did not ask, not being inquisitive. Your misfortunes engaged his sympathies. So, you see, you must have been interesting. He told me that he was anxious to restore you to the position which you had lost, and that he would seek your father until he found him. He did seek, and has found him, apparently, since he is here now, and finally my friend apprised me of your coming, and gave me a few other instructions relative to your future fortune. I am quite aware that my friend Wilmore is peculiar, but he is sincere, and as rich as a gold-mine. Consequently, he may indulge his eccentricities without any fear of their ruining him, and I have promised to adhere to his instructions. Now, sir, pray do not be offended at the question I am about to put to you, as it comes in the way of my duty as your patron. I would wish to know if the misfortunes which have happened to you, misfortunes entirely beyond your control, and which in no degree diminish my regard for you, I would wish to know if they have not, in some measure, contributed to render you a stranger to the world in which your fortune and your name entitle you to make a conspicuous figure. Sir, returned the young man, with a reassurance of manner, make your mind easy on this score. Those who took me from my father, and who always intended, sooner or later, to sell me again to my original proprietor, as they have now done, calculated that in order to make the most of their bargain, it would be politic to leave me in possession of all my personal and hereditary worth, and even to increase the value, if possible. I have therefore received a very good education, and have been treated by these kidnappers very much as the slaves were treated in Asia Minor, whose masters made them grammarians, doctors, and philosophers, in order that they might fetch a higher price in the Roman market. Monte Cristo smiled with satisfaction. It appeared as if he had not expected so much from Monsieur Andrea Cavalcanti. Besides, continued the young man, if there did appear some defect in education, or offence against the established forms of etiquette, I suppose it would be excused in consideration of the misfortunes which accompanied my birth, and followed me through my youth. Well, said Monte Cristo in an indifferent tone, you will do as you please, Count, for you are the master of your own actions, and are the person most concerned in the matter. But if I were you, I would not divulge a word of these adventures. Your history is quite a romance, and the world which delights in romances in yellow covers strangely mistrusts those which are bound in living parchment, even though they be gilded like yourself. This is the kind of difficulty which I wished to represent to you, my dear Count. You would hardly have recited your touching history before it would go forth to the world, and be deemed unlikely and unnatural. You would be no longer a lost child found, but you would be looked upon as an upstart who had sprung up like a mushroom in the night. You might excite a little curiosity, 
but it is not everyone who likes to be made the centre of observation and the subject of unpleasant remark i agree with you monsieur said the young man turning pale and in spite of himself trembling beneath the scrutinizing look of his companion such consequences would be extremely unpleasant nevertheless you must not exaggerate the evil said monte cristo for by endeavouring to avoid one fault you will fall into another you must resolve upon one simple and single line of conduct and for a man of your intelligence this plan is as easy as it is necessary you must form honourable friendships and by that means counteract the prejudice which may attach to the obscurity of your former life andrea visibly changed countenance i would offer myself as your surety and friendly adviser said monte cristo did i not possess a moral distrust of my best friends and a sort of inclination to lead others to doubt them too therefore in departing from this rule i should as the actors say be playing a part quite out of my line and should therefore run the risk of being hissed which would be an act of folly however your excellency said andrea in consideration of lord wilmore by whom i was recommended to you yes certainly interrupted monte cristo but lord wilmore did not omit to inform me my dear monsieur andrea that the season of your youth was rather a stormy one ah said the count watching andrea's countenance i do not demand any confession from you it is precisely to avoid that necessity that your father was sent for from lucca you shall soon see him he is a little stiff and pompous in his manner and he is disfigured by his uniform but when it becomes known that he has been for eighteen years in the austrian service all that will be pardoned we are not generally very severe with the austrians in short you will find your father a very presentable person i assure you ah sir you have given me confidence it is so long since we were separated that i have not the least remembrance of him and besides you know that in the eyes of the world a large fortune covers all defects he is a millionaire his income is five hundred thousand francs then said the young man with anxiety i shall be sure to be placed in an agreeable position one of the most agreeable possible my dear sir he will allow you an income of fifty thousand livres per annum during the whole time of your stay in paris then in that case i shall always choose to remain here you cannot control circumstances my dear sir man proposes and god disposes andrea sighed but said he so long as i do remain in paris and nothing forces me to quit it do you mean to tell me that i may rely on receiving the sum you just now mentioned to me 
You may. Shall I receive it from my father? asked Andrea with some uneasiness. Yes, you will receive it from your father personally, but Lord Wilmore will be the security for the money. He has, at the request of your father, opened an account of six thousand francs a month at Monsieur Donglar, which is one of the safest banks in Paris. And does my father mean to remain long in Paris? asked Andrea. Only a few days, replied Monte Cristo. His service does not allow him to absent himself more than two or three weeks together. Ah, oh, my dear father, exclaimed Andrea, evidently charmed with the idea of his speedy departure. Therefore, said Monte Cristo, feigning to mistake his meaning, therefore I will not, for another instant, retard the pleasure of your meeting. Are you prepared to embrace your worthy father? I hope you do not doubt it. Go then into the drawing-room, my young friend, where you will find your father awaiting you. Andrea made a low bow to the Count and entered the adjoining room. Monte Cristo watched him till he disappeared, and then touched a spring in a panel made to look like a picture, which in sliding partly from the frame discovered to view a small opening, so cleverly contrived that it revealed all that was passing in the drawing-room now occupied by Cavalcanti and Andrea. The young man closed the door behind him and advanced towards the major, who had risen when he heard steps approaching him. "'Ah, my dear father,' said Andrea in a loud voice, in order that the Count might hear him in the next room. "'Is it really you?' "'How do you do, my dear son?' said the major gravely. "'After so many years of painful separation,' said Andrea, in the same tone of voice, and glancing towards the door, "'what a happiness it is to meet again!' "'Indeed it is, after so long a separation.' "'Will you not embrace me, sir?' said Andrea. "'If you wish it, my son,' said the major." and the two men embraced each other, after the fashion of actors on the stage. That is to say, each rested his head on the other's shoulder. "'Then we are once more reunited,' said Andrea. "'Once more,' replied the Major. "'Never more to be separated.' "'Why, as to that, I think, my dear son, you must be by this time so accustomed to France as to look upon it almost as a second country. The fact is, said the young man, that I should be exceedingly grieved to leave it. As for me, you must know I cannot possibly live out of Lucca. Therefore I shall return to Italy as soon as I can. But before you leave France, my dear father... I hope you will put me in possession of the documents which will be necessary to prove my descent. Certainly. I am come expressly on that account. It has cost me much trouble to find you, but I had resolved on giving them into your hands, and if I had to recommence my search, it would occupy all the few remaining years of my life. 
Where are those papers, then? Here they are. Andrea seized the certificate of his father's marriage and his own baptismal register, and after having opened them with all the eagerness which might be expected under the circumstances, he read them with a facility which proved that he was accustomed to similar documents, and with an expression which plainly denoted an unusual interest in the contents. When he had perused the documents, an indefinable expression of pleasure lighted up his countenance, and looking at the Major with the most peculiar smile, he said in very excellent Tuscan, "'Then there is no longer any such thing in Italy as being condemned to the galleys.' The Major drew himself up to his full height. "'Why, what do you mean by that question?' "'I mean that if there were, it would be impossible to draw up with impunity two such deeds as these. In France, my dear sir, half such a piece of effrontery as that would cause you to be quickly dispatched to Toulon for five years for change of air. Will you be good enough to explain your meaning? said the Major, endeavouring as much as possible to assume an air of the greatest majesty. My dear Monsieur Cavalcanti, said Andrea, taking the Major by the arm in a confidential manner. How much are you being paid for being my father? The Major was about to speak when Andrea continued in a low voice. Nonsense. I am going to set you an example of confidence. They give me fifty thousand francs a year to be your son. Consequently, you can understand that it is not at all likely I shall ever deny my parent. The Major looked anxiously around him. Make yourself easy. We are quite alone, said Andrea. Besides, we are conversing in Italian. Well, then, replied the Major, they paid me fifty thousand francs down. Monsieur Cavalcanti, said Andrea, do you believe in fairy tales? I used not to do so, but I really feel now almost obliged to have faith in them. You have then been induced to alter your opinion. You have had some proofs of their truth. The Major drew from his pocket a handful of gold. Most palpable proofs, said he, as you may perceive. You think, then, that I may rely on the Count's promises? Certainly I do. You are sure he will keep his word with me? To the letter. But at the same time, remember, we must continue to play our respective parts, I as a tender father, and I as a dutiful son, as they choose that I shall be descended from you. Whom do you mean by they? Ma foi, I can hardly tell, but I was alluding to those who wrote the letter. You received one, did you not? Yes. From whom? from a certain Abbe Busoni. Have you any knowledge of him? No, I have never seen him. What did he say in the letter? You will promise not to betray me? Rest assured of that. You will know that our interests are the same. Then read for yourself. 
and the major gave a letter into the young man's hand. Andrea read in a low voice, You are poor, a miserable old age awaits you. Would you like to become rich or at least independent? Set out immediately for Paris and demand of the Count of Monte Cristo, Avenue des Champs Elysees, number 30, the son whom you had by the Marchesa Cosinari, and who has taken from you at five years of age. This son is named Andrea Cavalcanti. In order that you may not doubt the kind intention of the writer of this letter, you will find enclosed an order for 2,400 francs, payable in Florence at Signor Gozzi's. Also a letter of introduction to the Count of Monte Cristo, on whom I give you a draft of 48,000 francs. Remember to go to the Count on the 26th May at 7 o'clock in the evening. <sighs> Abbe Boussoni? It is the same. What do you mean? said the Major. I was going to say that I received a letter almost to the same effect. You? Yes. From the Abbe Boussoni? No. From whom, then? From an Englishman called Lord Wilmore, who takes the name of Sinbad the Sailor. And of whom you have no more knowledge than I of the Abbe Busoni. You are mistaken. There I am ahead of you. You have seen him, then? Yes, once. Where? Ah, that is just what I cannot tell you. If I did, I should make you as wise as myself, which is not my intention to do. And what did the letter contain? Read it. You are poor, and your future prospects are dark and gloomy. Do you wish for a name? Should you like to be rich, and your own master? Ma foi, said the young man, was it possible there could be two answers to such a question? Take the post-chaise, which you will find waiting at the Port de Jean, as you enter Nice. Pass through Turin, Chambary, and Pont de Bauzan. Go to the Count of Monte Cristo, Avenue de Champs-Élysées, on the 26th of May, at seven o'clock in the evening, and demand of him your father. You are the son of the Marchese Calvaganti and the Marchese Oliva Cosinari. The Marquis will give you some papers which will certify this fact, and authorize you to appear under that name in the Parisian world. As to your rank, an annual income of 50,000 livres will enable you to support it admirably. I enclose a draft for 5,000 livres, payable on Monsieur Ferreira, Bancar Nice, and also a letter of introduction to the Count of Monte Cristo, whom I have directed to supply all your wants. Simba the sailor? Hmm, said the Major. Very good. You have seen the Count, you say? I have only just left him. And has he conformed to all that the letter specified? He has. Do you understand it? Not in the least. There is a dupe somewhere. At all events, it is neither you nor I. Certainly not. Well, then. Why it does not much concern us? Do you think it does? No, I agree with you there. We must play the game to the end and consent to be blindfolded. Ah, you shall see. I promise you I will sustain my part to admiration. 
I never once doubted your doing so. Monte Cristo chose this moment for re-entering the drawing-room. On hearing the sound of his footsteps, the two men threw themselves in each other's arms, and while they were in the midst of this embrace, the Count entered. "'Well, Marquis,' said Monte Cristo, "'you appear to be in no way disappointed in the son whom your good fortune has restored to you.' "'Ah, Your Excellency, I am overwhelmed with delight.' "'And what are your feelings?' said Monte Cristo, turning to the young man. "'As for me, my heart is overflowing with happiness.' "'Happy father, happy son,' said the Count. "'There is only one thing which grieves me,' observed the Major, "'and that is the necessity for my leaving Paris so soon.' "'Ah, my dear Monsieur Cavalcanti, I trust you will not leave.' "'before I have had the honour of presenting you to some of my friends.' "'I am at your service, sir,' replied the Major. "'Now, sir,' said Monte Cristo, addressing Andrea, "'make your confession.' "'To whom?' "'Tell Monsieur Cavalcanti something of the state of your finances.' "'Ma foi, monsieur, you have touched upon a tender chord.' "'Do you hear what he says, Major?' "'Certainly I do. "'But do you understand?' "'I do. "'Your son says he requires money.' "'Well, what would you have me do?' said the Major. "'You should furnish him with some, of course,' replied Monte Cristo. "'I?' "'Yes, you,' said the Count, at the same time advancing towards Andrea "'and slipping a packet of banknotes into the young man's hand.' "'What is this?' "'It is from your father.' "'From my father?' "'Yes, did you not tell him just now that you wanted money? "'Well, then he deputes me to give you this.' "'Am I to consider this as part of my income on account?' "'No, it is for the first expenses of your settling in Paris.' "'Ah, oh, how good my dear father is!' "'Silence,' said Monte Cristo. He does not wish you to know that it comes from him. I fully appreciate his delicacy, said Andrea, cramming the notes hastily into his pocket. And now, gentlemen, I wish you good morning, said Monte Cristo. And when shall we have the honour of seeing you again, Your Excellency? asked Cavalcanti. Ah, said Andrea, when may we hope for that pleasure? On Saturday, if you will. "'Yes. Let me see. Saturday. I am to dine at my country house at Auteuil. On that day, Rue de la Fontaine, numero 28. Several persons are invited, and among others Monsieur Donglar, your banker. I will introduce you to him, for it will be necessary he should know you, as he is to pay your money.' "'Full dress?' said the Major, half aloud. "'Oh, yes, certainly,' said the Count.' A uniform cross, knee breeches. And how shall I be dressed? demanded Andrea. Oh, very simply. Black trousers, patent leather boots, white waistcoat, either a black or blue coat and a long cravat. Go to Blin or Veronique for your clothes. Baptistin will tell you where. If you do not know their address, the less pretension there is in your attire, the better will be the effect, 
as you are a rich man. If you mean to buy any horses, get them off Devedu, and if you purchase a phaeton, go to Batiste for it. At what hour shall we come? asked the young man. About half past six. We will be with you at that time, said the major. The two cavalcanti bowed to the count and left the house. Monte Cristo went to the window and saw them crossing the street, arm in arm. There go two miscreants, said he. It is a pity they are not really related. Then after an instant of gloomy reflection, Come, I will go to see the Morels, said he. I think that disgust is even more sickening than hatred. End of chapter 56「ピノンコンテモントクリスト」by Alexandre Dumas。This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 57 In the Lucerne Patch Our readers must now allow us to transport them again to the enclosure surrounding Monsieur de Villefort's house, and, behind the gate, half screened from view by the large chestnut trees, which on all sides spread their luxuriant branches, We shall find some people of our acquaintance. This time, Maximilian was the first to arrive. He was intently watching for a shadow to appear among the trees and awaiting with anxiety the sound of a light step on the gravel walk. At length, the long desired sound was heard, and instead of one figure as he had expected, he perceived that two were approaching. The delay had been occasioned by a visit from Madame Donglars and Eugenie. Which had been prolonged beyond the time at which Valentine was expected. That she might not appear to fail in her promise to Maximilian, she proposed to Mademoiselle Danglars that they should take a walk in the garden, being anxious to show that the delay, which was doubtless a cause of vexation to him, was not occasioned by any neglect on her part. The young man, with the intuitive perception of a lover, quickly understood the circumstances in which she was involuntarily placed. And he was comforted. Besides, although she avoided coming within speaking distance, Valentine arranged so that Maximilian could see her pass and repass, and each time she went by, she managed, unperceived by her companion, to cast an expressive look at the young man which seemed to say, Have patience, you see it is not my fault. And Maximilian was patient. And employed himself in mentally contrasting the two girls, one fair, with soft, languishing eyes, a figure gracefully bending like a weeping willow, the other a brunette with a fierce and haughty expression, and as straight as a poplar. It is unnecessary to state that in the eyes of the young man, Valentine did not suffer by the contrast. In about half an hour, the girls went away. And Maximilien understood that Mademoiselle Danglars' visit had at last come to an end. In a few minutes, Valentine re entered the garden alone. For fear that anyone should be observing her return, she walked slowly, and instead of immediately directing her steps towards the gate, she seated herself on a bench, and carefully casting her eyes around to convince herself that she was not watched, 
she presently arose, and proceeded quickly to join Maximilien. "'Good evening, Valentine,' said a well-known voice. "'Good evening, Maximilien. I know I have kept you waiting, but you saw the cause of my delay.' "'Yes, I recognize Mademoiselle Danglars. I was not aware that you were so intimate with her.' "'Who told you we were intimate, Maximilien?' "'No one, but you appeared to be so. From the manner in which you walked and talked together, one would have thought you were two schoolgirls telling your secrets to each other.' "'We were having a confidential conversation,' returned Valentine. "'She was owning to me her repugnance to the marriage with Monsieur de Morcerf, and I, on the other hand, was confessing to her how wretched it made me to think of marrying Monsieur d'Epinay.' "'Dear Valentine, that will account to you for the unreserved manner which you observed between me and Eugenie. As in speaking of the man whom I could not love, my thoughts involuntarily reverted to him on whom my affections were fixed.' "'Ah, how good you are to say so, Valentine. You possess a quality which can never belong to Mademoiselle Danglars. It is that indefinable charm which is to a woman what perfume is to the flower and flavour to the fruit, for the beauty of either is not the only quality we seek. It is your love which makes you look upon everything in that light. No, Valentine, I assure you such is not the case. I was observing you both when you were walking in the garden, and on my honour, Without at all wishing to depreciate the beauty of Mademoiselle Danglars, I cannot understand how any man can really love her. The fact is, Maximilian, that I was there, and my presence had the effect of rendering you unjust in your comparison. No, but tell me. It is a question of simple curiosity, and which was suggested by certain ideas passing in my mind relative to Mademoiselle Danglars. I dare say it is something disparaging which you are going to say. It only proves how little indulgence we may expect from your sex, interrupted Valentine. You cannot at least deny that you are very harsh judges of each other. If we are so, it is because we generally judge under the influence of excitement. But return to your question. Does Mademoiselle Danglars object to this marriage with Monsieur de Morcerf on account of loving another? I told you, I was not on terms of strict intimacy with Eugenie. Yes, but the girls tell each other secrets without being particularly intimate. Oh, now, that you did question her on the subject. Ah, I see you are smiling. If you are already aware of the conversation that passed... The wooden partition which interposed between us and you has proved but a slight security. Come, what did she say? She told me that she loved no one, said Valentine, that she disliked the idea of being married, that she would infinitely prefer leading an independent and unfettered life, and that she almost wished her father might lose his fortune, that she might become an artist, like her friend. Mademoiselle Louise d'Armilly. Ah, you see. Well, what does that prove? asked Valentine. 
nothing replied maximilian then why do you smile why you know very well that you are reflecting on yourself valentine do you want me to go away ah no no but do not let us lose time you are the subject on which i wish to speak true we must be quick for we are scarcely ten minutes more to pass together ma foi said maximilian in consternation yes you are right i am but a poor friend to you what a life i cause you to lead poor maximilian you who are formed for happiness i bitterly reproach myself i assure you well what does it signify valentine so long as i am satisfied and feel that even this long and painful suspense is amply repaid by five minutes of your society or two words from your lips and i have also a deep conviction that heaven would not have created two hearts harmonizing as ours do and almost miraculously brought us together to separate us at last those are kind and cheering words you must hope for us both maximilian that will make me at least partly happy but why must you leave so soon i do not know particulars i can only tell you that madame de villefort sent to request my presence as she had a communication to make on which a part of my fortune depended let them take my fortune i am already too rich and perhaps when they have taken it they will leave me in peace and quietness you would love me as much if i were poor would you not maximilien oh i shall always love you what should i care for either riches or poverty if my valentine was near me and i felt certain that no one could deprive me of her but do not fear that this communication may relate to your marriage i do not think that is the case however it may be valentine you must not be alarmed i assure you that as long as i live i shall never love anyone else you think to reassure me when you say that maximilien pardon me you are right i am a brute but i was going to tell you that i met monsieur de morcerf the other day well monsieur france is his friend you know what then monsieur de morcerf has received a letter from france announcing his immediate return valentine turned pale and leaned her hand against the gate ah oh, heavens if it were that but no the communication would not come from madame de villefort why not because i scarcely know why but it has appeared as if madame de villefort secretly objected to the marriage although she did not choose openly to oppose it is it so then i feel as if i could adore madame de villefort do not be in such a hurry to do that said valentine with a sad smile if she objects to your marrying monsieur d'epinay she would be all the more likely to listen to any other proposition no maximilian it is not suitors to which madame de villefort objects it is marriage itself marriage if she dislikes that so much why did she ever marry herself you do not understand me maximilian about a year ago i talked of retiring to a convent madame de villefort 
in spite of all the remarks which she considered it her duty to make, secretly approved of the proposition. My father consented to it at her instigation, and it was only on account of my poor grandfather that I finally abandoned the project. You can form no idea of the expression of that old man's eye when he looks at me, the only person in the world whom he loves, and I had almost said by whom he is beloved in return. When he learned my resolution, I shall never forget the reproachful look which he cast on me, and the tears of utter despair which chased each other down his lifeless cheeks. Oh, Maximilian, I experienced at that moment such remorse for my intention, that, throwing myself at his feet, I exclaimed, "'Forgive me, pray, forgive me, my dear grandfather. They may do what they will with me. I will never leave you.' When I had ceased speaking, he thankfully raised his eyes to heaven, but without uttering a word. "'Ah, oh, Maximilian, I may have much to suffer, but I feel as if my grandfather's look at that moment would more than compensate for all.' Dear Valentine, you are a perfect angel, and I am sure I do not know what I, sabring right and left among the Bedouins, can have done to merit your being revealed to me, unless indeed heaven took into consideration the fact that the victims of my sword were infidels. But tell me, what interest Madame de Villefort can have in your remaining unmarried? Did I not tell you just now? that I was rich, Maximilian, too rich. I possess nearly fifty thousand livres, in right of my mother, my grandfather, and my grandmother, the Marquis and Marquise de Saint-Méran, will leave me as much, and Monsieur Noirtier evidently intends making me his heir. My brother Edward, who inherits nothing from his mother, will therefore be poor in comparison with me. Now, if I had taken the veil... All this fortune would have descended to my father, and, in reversion, to his son. Ah, how strange it seems that such a young and beautiful woman should be so avaricious. It is not for herself that she is so, but for her son. And what you regard as a vice becomes almost a virtue when looked at in the light of maternal love. But could you not compromise matters, and give up a portion of your fortune to her son? How could I make such a proposition, especially to a woman who always professes to be so entirely disinterested? Valentine, I have always regarded our love in the light of something sacred. Consequently, I have covered it with the veil of respect, and hid it in the innermost recesses of my soul. No human being, not even my sister, is aware of its existence. Valentine, will you permit me to make a confidant of a friend and reveal to him the love I bear you? Valentine started. A friend, Maximilien? And who is this friend? I tremble to give my permission. Listen, Valentine. Have you never experienced for anyone that sudden and irresistible sympathy which made you feel as if the object of it had been your old and familiar friend, though in reality it was the first time you had ever met? Nay, further, have you never endeavoured to recall the time, place, and circumstance of your former intercourse, 
and failing in this attempt, have almost believed that your spirits must have held converse with each other in some state of being anterior to the present, and that you are only now occupied in a reminiscence of the past. Yes. Well, that is precisely the feeling which I experienced when I first saw that extraordinary man. Extraordinary, did you say? Yes. You have known him for some time, then? Scarcely longer than eight or ten days. And do you call a man your friend, whom you have only known for eight or ten days? Ah, Maximilien, I had hoped you set a higher value on the title of friend. Your logic is most powerful, Valentine, but say what you will. I can never renounce the sentiment which has instinctively taken possession of my mind. I feel as if it were ordained that this man should be associated with all the good which the future may have in store for me, and sometimes it really seems as if his eye were able to see what has to come, and his hand endowed with the power of directing events according to his own will. He must be a prophet, then, said Valentine, smiling. Indeed, said Maximilian, I have often been almost tempted to attribute to him the gift of prophecy. At all events, he has a wonderful power of foretelling any future good. Ah, said Valentine in a mournful tone, do let me see this man, Maximilian. He may tell me whether I shall ever be loved sufficiently to make amends for all I have suffered. My poor girl, you know him already. I know him? Yes, it was he who saved the life of your stepmother and her son. The Count of Monte Cristo? The same. Ah, <sighs> cried Valentine, he is too much the friend of Madame de Villefort ever to be mine. The friend of Madame de Villefort? It cannot be. Surely, Valentine, you are mistaken. No, indeed, I am not. For I assure you, his power over our household is almost unlimited. Courted by my stepmother, who regards him as the epitome of human wisdom, admired by my father, who says he has never before heard such sublime ideas so eloquently expressed, idolized by Edward, who, notwithstanding his fear of the Count's large black eyes, runs to meet him the moment he arrives, and opens his hand, in which he is sure to find some delightful present. Monsieur de Monte Cristo appears to exert a mysterious and almost uncontrollable influence over all the members of our family. If such be the case, my dear Valentine, you must yourself have felt, or at all events will soon feel, the effects of his presence. He meets Albert de Morcerf in Italy. It is to rescue him from the hands of the banditti. He introduces himself to Madame Danglars. It is that he may give her a royal present. Your stepmother and her son pass before his door. It is that his Nubian may save them from destruction. This man evidently possesses the power of influencing events, both as regards men and things. I never saw more simple tastes united to greater magnificence. His smile is so sweet when he addresses me that I forget it ever can be bitter to others. Ah, Valentine, tell me if he ever looked on you with one of those sweet smiles. If so, depend on it, 
you will be happy me said the young girl he never even glances at me on the contrary if i accidentally cross his path he appears rather to avoid me ah he is not generous neither does he possess that supernatural penetration which you attribute to him for if he did he would have perceived that i was unhappy and if he had been generous seeing me sad and solitary he would have used his influence to my advantage and since as you say he resembles the sun he would have warmed my heart with one of his life-giving rays you say he loves you maximilian how do you know that he does all would pay deference to an officer like you with a fierce moustache and a long sabre but they think they may crush a poor weeping girl with impunity ah valentine i assure you you are mistaken if it were otherwise if he treated me diplomatically that is to say like a man who wishes by some means or other to obtain a footing in the house so that he may ultimately gain the power of dictating to its occupants he would if it had been what but once have honoured me with the smile which you extol so loudly but no he saw that i was unhappy he understood that i could be of no use to him and therefore paid no attention to me whatever who knows but that in order to please madame de villefort and my father he may not persecute me by every means in his power it is not just that he should despise me so without any reason oh forgive me said valentine perceiving the effect which her words were producing on maximilian i have done wrong for i have given utterance to thoughts concerning that man which i did not even know existed in my heart i do not deny the influence of which you speak or that i have not myself experienced it but with me it has been productive of evil rather than good well valentine said morel with a sigh we will not discuss the matter further i will not make a confidant of him alas said valentine i see that i have given you pain i can only say how sincerely i ask pardon for having grieved you but indeed i am not prejudiced beyond the power of conviction tell me what this count of monte cristo has done for you i own that your question embarrasses me valentine for i cannot say that the count has rendered me any ostensible service still as i have already told you i have an instinctive affection for him the source of which i cannot explain to you has the sun done anything for me no he warms me with his rays and it is by his light that i see you nothing more has such and such a perfume done anything for me no its odor charms one of my senses that is all i can say when i am asked why i praise it my friendship for him is as strange and unaccountable as his for me a secret voice seems to whisper to me that there must be something more than chance in this unexpected reciprocity of friendship in his most simple actions as well as in his most secret thoughts i find a relation to my own you will perhaps smile at me when i tell you that ever since i have known this man i have involuntarily entertained the idea that all the good fortune which has befallen me originated from him however i have managed to live thirty years without his protection 
you will say, but I will endeavour a little to illustrate my meaning. He invited me to dine with him on Saturday, which was a very natural thing for him to do. Well, what have I learned since? That your mother and Monsieur de Villefort are both coming to this dinner. I shall meet them there, and who knows what future advantages may result from this interview. This may appear to you to be no unusual combination of circumstance. Nevertheless, I perceive some hidden plot in the arrangement, something, in fact, more than is apparent on a casual view of the subject. I believe that this singular man, who appears to fathom the motives of every one, has purposely arranged for me to meet Monsieur and Madame de Villefort, and sometimes I confess I have gone so far as to try and read in his eyes whether he was in possession of the secret of our love. "'My good friend,' said Valentine, "'I should take you for a visionary, and should tremble for your reason, if I were always to hear your talk in a strain similar to this. Is it possible that you can see anything more than the merest chance in this meeting? Pray, reflect a little.' My father, who never goes out, has several times been on the point of refusing this invitation. Madame de Villefort, on the contrary, is burning with the desire of seeing this extraordinary nabob in his own house. Therefore, she has with great difficulty prevailed on my father to accompany her. No, no, it is as I have said, Maximilian, there is no one in the world of whom I can ask help but yourself and my grandfather, who is little better than a corpse. "'I see that you are right, logically speaking,' said Maximilian. "'But the gentle voice, which usually has such power over me, fails to convince me today. "'I feel the same as regards yourself,' said Valentine. "'And I own that, if you have no stronger proof to give me—' "'I have another,' replied Maximilian but I fear you will deem it even more absurd than the first. So much the worse, said Valentine, smiling. It is nevertheless conclusive to my mind. My ten years of service have also confirmed my ideas on the subject of sudden inspirations, for I have several times owed my life to a mysterious impulse which directed me to move at once either to the right or to the left, in order to escape the ball which killed the comrade fighting by my side, while it left me unharmed. Dear Maximilian, why not attribute your escape to my constant prayers for your safety? When you are away, I no longer pray for myself, but for you. Yes, since you have known me, said Morel, smiling, but that cannot apply to the time previous to our acquaintance, Valentine. You are very provoking, and will not give me credit for anything, but let me hear this second proof, which you yourself own to be absurd. Well, look through this opening, and you will see the beautiful new horse which I rode here. Ah, what a beautiful creature, cried Valentine. Why did you not bring him close to the gate, so that I could talk to him and pat him? He is, as you see, a very valuable animal, said Maximilian. You know that my means are limited, and that I am what would be designated a man of moderate pretensions. Well, 
I went to horse-dealers, where I saw this magnificent horse, which I have named Medea. I asked the price. They told me it was four thousand five hundred francs. I was therefore obliged to give it up, as you may imagine. But I own I went away with rather a heavy heart, for the horse had looked at me affectionately, had rubbed his head against me, and, when I mounted him, had pranced in the most delightful way imaginable, so that I was altogether fascinated with him. The same evening some friends of mine visited me, Monsieur de Chateaurenaud, Monsieur de Bray, and five or six other choice spirits, whom you do not know even by name. They proposed a game of bouillotte. I never play, for I am not rich enough to afford to lose, or sufficiently poor to desire to gain. But I was at my own house, you understand, so there was nothing to be done but to send for the cards, which I did. Just as they were sitting down to table, Monsieur de Monte Cristo arrived. He took his seat amongst them. They played, and I won. I am almost ashamed to say that my gains amounted to five thousand francs. We separated at midnight. I could not defer my pleasure, so I took a cabriolet and drove to the horse-dealers, feverish and excited. I rang at the door. The person who opened it must have taken me for a madman, for I rushed at once to the stable. Medea was standing at the rack, eating his hay. I immediately put on the saddle and bridle, to which operation he lent himself with the best grace possible. Then, putting the four thousand five hundred francs into the hands of the astonished dealer, I proceeded to fulfil my intention of passing the night in riding in the Champs-Élysées. As I rode by the Count's house, I perceived a light in one of the windows, and fancied I saw the shadow of his figure moving behind the curtain. Now, Valentine, I firmly believe that he knew of my wish to possess this horse, and that he lost expressly to give me the means of procuring him. My dear Maximilian, you are really too fanciful. You will not love even me long. A man who accustoms himself to live in such a world of poetry and imagination must find far too little excitement in a common, everyday sort of attachment such as ours. But they are calling me. Do you hear? Ah, Valentine, said Maximilian. Give me but one finger through this opening in the grating, one finger, the littlest finger of all, that I may have the happiness of kissing it. Maximilian, we said we would be to each other as two voices, two shadows. As you will, Valentine. Shall you be happy if I do what you wish? Oh, yes. Valentine mounted on a bench and passed not only her finger, but her whole hand through the opening. Maximilian uttered a cry of delight, and springing forwards, seized the hand extended towards him, and imprinted on it a fervent and impassioned kiss. The little hand was then immediately withdrawn, and the young man saw Valentine hurrying towards the house, as though she were almost terrified at her own sensations. End of chapter 57「Families have a lot going on. 
Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Chapter 58 of the Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 58 Monsieur Noirtier de Villefort. We will now relate what was passing in the house of the king's attorney after the departure of Madame Danglars and her daughter, and during the time of the conversation between Maximilian and Valentine, which we have just detailed. Monsieur de Villefort entered his father's room, followed by Madame de Villefort. Both of the visitors, after saluting the old man and speaking to Barrois, a faithful servant who had been twenty-five years in his service, took their places on either side of the paralytic. Monsieur Noirtier was sitting in an armchair which moved upon casters, in which he was wheeled into the room in the morning and in the same way drawn out again at night. He was placed before a large glass, which reflected the whole apartment, and so without any attempt to move, which would have been impossible, he could see all who entered the room and everything which was going on around him. Monsieur Noirtier, although almost as immovable as a corpse, looked at the newcomers with a quick and intelligent expression, perceiving at once by their ceremonious courtesy that they were come on business of an unexpected and official character. Sight and hearing were the only senses remaining, and they, like two solitary sparks, remained to animate the miserable body which seemed fit for nothing but the grave. It was only, however, by means of one of these senses that he could reveal the thoughts and feelings that still occupied his mind, and the look by which he gave expression to his inner life was like the distant gleam of a candle which a traveller sees by night across some desert place, and knows that a living being dwells beyond the silence and obscurity. Noirtier's hair was long and white and flowed over his shoulders, while in his eyes, shaded by thick black lashes, was concentrated, as it often happens with an organ which is used to the exclusion of the others, all the activity, address, force and intelligence which were formerly diffused over his whole body, and so although the movement of the arm, the sound of the voice, and the agility of the body were wanting, the speaking eye sufficed for all. He commanded with it. It was the medium through which his thanks were conveyed. In short, his whole appearance produced on the mind the impression of a corpse with living eyes, and nothing could be more startling than to observe the expression of anger or joy suddenly lighting up these organs while the rest of the rigid and marble-like features were utterly deprived of the power of participation. Three persons only could understand this language of the poor paralytic. These were Villefort, Valentine, and the old servant of whom we have already spoken. But as Villefort saw his father but seldom, and then only when absolutely obliged, and as he never took any pains to please or gratify him when he was there, all the old man's happiness was centred in his granddaughter. Valentine, by means of her love, her patience, and her devotion, 
had learned to read in Noirtier's look all the varied feelings which were passing in his mind. To this dumb language, which was so unintelligible to others, she answered by throwing her whole soul into the expression of her countenance, and in this manner were the conversations sustained between the blooming girl and the helpless invalid, whose body could scarcely be called a living one, but who nevertheless possessed a fund of knowledge and penetration, united with a will as powerful as ever, although clogged by a body rendered utterly incapable of obeying its impulses. Valentine had solved the problem, and was able easily to understand his thoughts, and to convey her own in return, and through her untiring and devoted assiduity, it was seldom that in the ordinary transactions of everyday life she failed to anticipate the wishes of the living, thinking mind, or the wants of the almost inanimate body. As to the servant, he had, as we have said, been with his master for five and twenty years. Therefore he knew all his habits, and it was seldom that Noirtier found it necessary to ask for anything, so prompt was he in administering to all the necessities of the invalid. Villefort did not need the help of either Valentine or the domestic in order to carry on with his father the strange conversation which he was about to begin. As we have said, he perfectly understood the old man's vocabulary, and if he did not use it more often, it was only indifference and ennui which prevented him from so doing. He therefore allowed Valentine to go into the garden, sent away Barrois, and after having seated himself at his father's right hand, while Madame de Villefort placed herself on the left, he addressed him thus. "'I trust you will not be displeased, sir, that Valentine has not come with us, or that I dismissed Barrois, for our conference will be one which could not with propriety be carried out in the presence of either. Madame de Villefort and I have a communication to make to you.' Noirtier's face remained perfectly passive during this long preamble, while, on the contrary, Villefort's eye was endeavouring to penetrate into the inmost recesses of the old man's heart. "'This communication,' continued the procureur, in that cold and decisive tone which seemed at once to preclude all discussion, "'will, we are sure, meet with your approbation.' The eye of the invalid still retained that vacancy of expression which prevented his son from obtaining any knowledge of the feelings which were passing in his mind. He listened. Nothing more. "'Sir,' resumed Villefort, "'we are thinking of marrying Valentine.' Had the old man's face been moulded in wax, it could not have shown less emotion at this news than was now to be traced there. "'The marriage will take place in less than three months,' said Villefort. Noirtier's eye still retained its inanimate expression. Madame de Villefort now took her part in the conversation, and added, "'We thought this news would possess an interest for you, sir, who have always entertained a great affection for Valentine. It therefore only now remains for us to tell you the name of the young man for whom she is destined. It is one of the most desirable connections which could possibly be formed.' He possesses a fortune, a high rank in society, and every personal qualification likely to render Valentine supremely happy. His name, moreover, cannot be wholly unknown to you. It is Monsieur Franz de Quesnel, Baron d'Epinay. 
while his wife was speaking villefort had narrowly watched the old man's countenance when madame de villefort pronounced the name of france the pupil of monsieur noirtier's eye began to dilate and his eyelids trembled with the same movement that may be perceived on the lips of an individual about to speak and he darted a lightning glance at madame de villefort and his son the procureur who knew the political hatred which had formerly existed between monsieur noirtier and the elder d'epinay well understood the agitation and anger which the announcement had produced but feigning not to perceive either he immediately resumed the narrative begun by his wife sir said he you are aware that valentine is about to enter her nineteenth year which renders it important that she should lose no time in forming a suitable alliance nevertheless you have not been forgotten in our plans and we have fully ascertained beforehand that valentine's future husband will consent not to live in this house for that might not be pleasant for the young people but that you should live with them so that you and valentine who are so attached to each other would not be separated and you would be able to pursue exactly the same course of life which you have hitherto done and thus instead of losing you will be a gainer by the change as it will secure to you two children instead of one to watch over and comfort you noirtier's look was furious it was very evident that something desperate was passing in the old man's mind for a cry of anger and grief rose in his throat and not being able to find vent in utterance appeared almost to choke him for his face and lips turned quite purple with the struggle villefort quietly opened a window saying it is very warm and the heat affects monsieur noirtier he then returned to his place but did not sit down this marriage added madame de villefort is quite agreeable to the wishes of monsieur d'epinay and his family besides he had no relations nearer than an uncle and an aunt his mother having died at his birth and his father having been assassinated in eighteen fifteen that is to say when he was but two years old it naturally followed that the child was permitted to choose his own pursuits and he has therefore seldom acknowledged any other authority but that of his own will that assassination was a mysterious affair said villefort and the perpetrators have hitherto escaped detection although suspicion has fallen on the head of more than one person noirtier made such an effort that his lips expanded into a smile now continued villefort those to whom the guilt really belongs by whom the crime was committed on who says the justice of man may probably descend here and the certain judgment of god hereafter would rejoice in the opportunity thus afforded of bestowing such a peace offering as valentine on the son of him whose life they so ruthlessly destroyed noirtier had succeeded in mastering his emotion more than could have been deemed possible with such an enfeebled and shattered frame yes i understand was the reply contained in his look and this look expressed a feeling of strong indignation mixed with profound contempt villefort fully understood his father's meaning and answered by a slight shrug of his shoulders 
he then motioned to his wife to take leave now sir said madame de villefort i must bid you farewell would you like me to send edward to you for a short time it had been agreed that the old man should express his approbation by closing his eyes his refusal by winking them several times and if he had some desire or feeling to express he raised them to heaven if he wanted valentine he closed his right eye only and if barois the left at madame de villefort's proposition he instantly winked his eyes provoked by a complete refusal she bit her lip and said then shall i send valentine to you the old man closed his eyes eagerly thereby intimating that such was his wish <coughs> monsieur and madame de villefort bowed and left the room giving orders that valentine should be summoned to her grandfather's presence and feeling sure that she would have much to do to restore calmness to the perturbed spirit of the invalid valentine with a color still heightened by emotion entered the room just after her parents had quitted it one look was sufficient to tell her that her grandfather was suffering and that there was much on his mind which she was wishing to communicate to her dear grandpapa cried she what has happened they have vexed you and you are angry the paralytic closed his eyes in token of assent who has displeased you is it my father no madame de villefort no me the former sign was repeated are you displeased with me cried valentine in astonishment monsieur noirtier again closed his eyes and what have i done dear grandpapa that you should be angry with me cried valentine there was no answer and she continued i have not seen you all day has anyone been speaking to you against me yes said the old man's look with eagerness let me think a moment i do assure you grandpapa ah monsieur and madame de villefort have just left this room have they not yes and it was they who told you something which made you angry what was it then may i go and ask them that i may have the opportunity of making my peace with you no no said noirtier's look ah you frighten me what can they have said and she again tried to think what it could be ah i know she said lowering her voice and going close to the old man they have been speaking of my marriage have they not yes replied the angry look i understand you are displeased at the silence i have preserved on the subject the reason of it was that they had insisted on me keeping the matter a secret and begged me not to tell you of anything of it they did not even acquaint me with their intentions and i only discovered them by chance that is why i have been so reserved with you dear grandpapa pray forgive me but there was no look calculated to reassure her all it seemed to say was it is not only your reserve which afflicts me what is it then asked the young girl perhaps you think i shall abandon you dear grandpapa and that i shall forget you when i am married no they told you then that monsieur d'epinay consented to our living altogether yes then why are you still vexed and grieved the old man's eyes beamed with an expression of gentle affection yes 
i understand said valentine it is because you love me the old man assented and you are afraid i shall be unhappy yes you do not like monsieur france the eyes repeated several times no 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 then you are vexed with the engagement yes well listen said valentine throwing herself on her knees and putting her arm around her grandfather's neck i am vexed too for i do not love monsieur franz d'epinay an expression of intense joy illumined the old man's eyes when i wish to retire into a convent you remember how angry you were with me a tear trembled in the eye of the invalid well continued valentine the reason of my proposing it was that i might escape this hateful marriage which drives me to despair noirtier's breathing became quick and short then the idea of this marriage really grieves you too oh if you could but help me if we could put together defeat their plan but you are unable to oppose them you whose mind is so quick and whose will is so firm are nevertheless as weak and unequal to the contest as i am myself alas you who would have been such a powerful protector to me in the days of your health and strength can now only sympathize in my joys and sorrows without being able to take any active part in them however this is much and calls for gratitude and heaven has not taken away all my blessings when it leaves me your sympathy and kindness at these words there appeared in noirtier's eye an expression of such deep meaning that the young girl thought she could read these words there you are mistaken i can still do much for you do you think you can help me dear grandpapa said valentine yes noirtier raised his eyes it was the sign agreed on between him and valentine when he wanted anything what is it you want dear grandpapa said valentine and she endeavoured to recall to mind all the things which she would be likely to need and as the ideas presented themselves to her mind she repeated them aloud then finding that all her efforts elicited nothing but a constant no she said come since this plan does not answer i still have recourse to another she then recited all the letters of the alphabet from a down to n when she arrived at that letter the paralytic made her understand that she had spoken the initial letter of the thing he wanted ah said valentine the thing you desire begins with a letter n it is with n that we have to do then well let me see what can you want that begins with n na ni ni no yes 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 said the old man's eye ah it is no then yes valentine fetched a dictionary which she placed on a desk before noirtier she opened it and seeing that the odd man's eye was thoroughly fixed on its pages she ran her finger quickly up and down the columns during the six years which had passed since noirtier first fell into this sad state valentine's powers of invention had been too often put to the test not to render her expert in devising expedients for gaining a knowledge of his wishes and the constant practice had so perfected her in the art that she guessed the old man's meaning as quickly as if he himself had been able to seek for what he wanted at the word notary 
Noirtier made a sign to her to stop. Notary, said she. Do you want our notary, dear grandpapa? The old man again signified that it was a notary he desired. You would wish a notary to be sent for then? said Valentine. Yes. Shall my father be informed of your wish? Yes. Do you wish the notary to be sent for immediately? Yes. Then they shall go for him directly. Dear Grandpapa, is that all you want? Yes. Valentine rang the bell and ordered the servant to tell Monsieur or Madame de Villefort that they were requested to come to Monsieur Noirtier's room. Are you satisfied now? inquired Valentine. Yes. I am sure you are. It is not very difficult to discover that. And the young girl smiled on her grandfather as if he had been a child. Monsieur de Villefort entered, followed by Barrois. What do you want from me, sir? demanded he of the paralytic. Sir, said Valentine, my grandfather wishes for a notary. At this strange and unexpected demand, Monsieur de Villefort and his father exchanged looks. Yes, motioned the latter, with a firmness which seemed to declare that with the help of Valentine and his old servant, who both knew what his wishes were, he was quite prepared to maintain the contest. Do you wish for a notary? asked Villefort. Yes. What to do? Noirtier made no answer. What do you want with a notary? again repeated Villefort. The invalid's eye remained fixed, by which expression he intended to intimate that his resolution was unalterable. "'Is it to do us some ill-turn?' "'Do you think it is worthwhile?' said Villefort. "'Still,' said Barrois, with the freedom and fidelity of an old servant, "'if Monsieur Noirtier asks for a notary, I suppose he really wishes for a notary. Therefore I shall go at once and fetch one.' Barrois acknowledged no master, but Noirtier, and never allowed his desires in any way to be contradicted. "'Yes, I do want a notary,' motioned the old man, shutting his eyes with a look of defiance, which seemed to say, "'And I should like to see the person who dares to refuse my request.' "'You shall have a notary, as you absolutely wish for one, sir,' said Villefort. "'But I shall explain to him your state of health, and make excuses for you, for the scene cannot fail of being a most ridiculous one. Never mind that, said Barrois. I should go and fetch a notary, nevertheless. And the old servant departed triumphantly on his mission. End of chapter 58「This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Chapter 59 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 59 The Will. 
as soon as barrois had left the room noirtier looked at valentine with a malicious expression that said many things the young girl perfectly understood the look and so did villefort for his countenance became clouded and he knitted his eyebrows angrily he took a seat and quietly awaited the arrival of the notary noirtier saw him seat himself with an appearance of perfect indifference at the same time giving a side look at valentine which made her understand that she was also to remain in the room three quarters of an hour after barois returned bringing the notary with him sir said villefort after the first salutations were over you are sent for by monsieur noirtier whom you see here all his limbs have become completely paralyzed he has lost his voice also and we ourselves find much trouble in endeavoring to catch some fragments of his meaning noirtier cast an appealing look on valentine which look was at once so earnest and imperative that she answered immediately sir said she i perfectly understand my grandfather's meaning at all times that is quite true said barrois and that is what i told the gentleman as we walked along permit me said the notary turning him first to villefort and then to valentine permit me to state that the case in question is just one of those in which a public officer like myself cannot proceed to act without thereby incurring a dangerous responsibility the first thing necessary to render an act valid is that the notary should be thoroughly convinced that he has faithfully interpreted the will and wishes of the person dictating the act now i cannot be sure of the approbation or disapprobation of a client who cannot speak and as the object of his desire or his repugnance cannot be clearly proved to me on account of his want of speech my services here would be quite useless and cannot be legally exercised the notary then prepared to retire an imperceptible smile of triumph was expressed on the lips of the procureur noirtier looked at valentine with an expression so full of grief that she arrested the departure of the notary sir said she the language which i speak with my grandfather may be easily learned and i can teach you in a few minutes to understand it almost as well as i can myself will you tell me what you require in order to set your conscience quite at ease on the subject in order to render an act valid i must be certain of the approbation or disapprobation of my client illness of body would not affect the validity of the deed but sanity of mind is absolutely requisite well sir by the help of two signs with which i will acquaint you presently you may ascertain with perfect certainty that my grandfather is still in the full possession of all his mental faculties monsieur noirtier being deprived of voice and motion is accustomed to convey his meaning by closing his eyes when he wishes to signify yes and to wink when he means no you know quite enough to enable you to converse with monsieur noirtier try noirtier gave valentine such a luck of tenderness and gratitude that it was comprehended even by the notary himself you have heard and understood what your granddaughter has been saying sir have you 
asked the notary noirtier closed his eyes and you approve of what she said that is to say you declare that the signs which she mentioned are really those by means of which you are accustomed to convey your thoughts yes it was you who sent for me yes to make your will yes and you do not wish me to go away without fulfilling your original intentions the old man winked violently well sir said the young girl do you understand now and is your conscience perfectly at rest on the subject but before the notary could answer villefort had drawn him aside sir said he do you suppose for a moment that a man can sustain a physical shock such as monsieur noirtier has received without any detriment to his mental faculties it is not exactly that sir said the notary which makes me uneasy but the difficulty will be in wording his thoughts and intentions so as to be able to get his answers you must see that to be an utterly impossibility said villefort valentine and the old man heard this conversation and noirtier fixed his eyes so earnestly on valentine that she felt bound to answer to the look sir said she that need not make you uneasy however difficult it may at first sight appear to be i can discover and explain to you my grandfather's thoughts so as to put an end to all your doubts and fears on the subject i have now been six years with monsieur noirtier and let him tell you if ever once during that time he has entertained a thought which he was unable to make me understand no signed the old man let us try what we can do then said the notary you accept this young lady as your interpreter monsieur noirtier yes well sir what do you require of me and what document is it that you wish to be drawn up valentine named all the letters of the alphabet until she came to w at this letter the eloquent eye of noirtier gave her notice that she was to stop it is very evident that it is the letter w which monsieur noirtier wants said the notary wait said valentine and turning to her grandfather she repeated what where oui the old man stopped her at the last syllable valentine then took the dictionary and the notary watched her while she turned over the pages she passed her finger slowly down the column and when she came to the word will monsieur noirtier's eyes bade her stop will said the notary it is very evident that monsieur noirtier is desirous of making his will yes 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 motioned the invalid really sir you must allow that this is most extraordinary said the astonished notary turning to monsieur de villefort yes said the procureur and i think the will promises to be yet more extraordinary for i cannot see how it is to be drawn up without the intervention of valentine and she may perhaps be considered as too much interested in its contents to allow of her being a suitable interpreter of the obscure and ill-defined wishes of her grandfather no 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 replied the eye of the paralytic what said villefort 
"'Do you mean to say that Valentine is not interested in your will?' "'No.' "'Sir,' said the notary, whose interest had been greatly excited, and who had resolved on publishing far and wide the account of this extraordinary and picturesque scene. "'What appeared so impossible to me an hour ago has now become quite easy and practicable, and this may be a perfectly valid will, provided it be read in the presence of seven witnesses, approved by the testator, and sealed by the notary in the presence of the witnesses.' as to the time it will not require very much more than the generality of wills there are certain forms necessary to be gone through and which are always the same as to the details the greater part will be furnished afterwards by the state in which we find the affairs of the testator and by yourself who having had the management of them can doubtless give full information on the subject but besides all this in order that the instrument may not be contested i am anxious to give it the greatest possible authenticity therefore one of my colleagues will help me and contrary to custom will assist in the dictation of the testament are you satisfied sir continued the notary addressing the old man yes looked the invalid his eye beaming with delight at the ready interpretation of his meaning what is he going to do thought villefort whose position demanded much reserve but who was longing to know what his father's intentions were he left the room to give orders for another notary to be sent but barrois who had heard all that passed had guessed his master's wishes and had already gone to fetch one the procureur then told his wife to come up in the course of a quarter of an hour everyone had assembled in the chamber of the paralytic the second notary had also arrived a few words sufficed for a mutual understanding between the two officers of the law they read to noirtier the formal copy of a will in order to give him an idea of the terms in which such documents are generally couched then in order to test the capacity of the testator the first notary said turning towards him when an individual makes his will it is generally in favor or in prejudice of some person yes have you an exact idea of the amount of your fortune yes i will name to you several sums which will increase by gradation you will stop me when i reach one representing the amount of your own possessions yes there was a kind of solemnity in this interrogation never had the struggle between mind and matter been more apparent than now and if it was not a sublime it was at least a curious spectacle they had formed a circle round the invalid the second notary was sitting at a table prepared for writing and his colleague was standing before the testator in the act of interrogating him on the subject to which we have alluded your fortune exceeds three hundred thousand francs does it not asked he noirtier made a sign that it did do you possess four hundred thousand francs inquired the notary noirtier's eyes remained immovable five hundred thousand the same expression continued six hundred thousand seven hundred thousand 
Eight hundred thousand? Nine hundred thousand? Noirtier stopped him at the last named sum. You are then in possession of nine hundred thousand francs, asked the notary. Yes. In landed property? No. In stock? Yes. The stock is in your own hands. The look which Monsieur Nortier cast on Barrois showed that there was something wanting which he knew where to find. The old servant left the room and presently returned, bringing with him a small casket. "'Do you permit us to open this casket?' asked the notary. Noirtier gave his assent. They opened it, and found nine hundred thousand francs in bank scrip. The first notary handed over each note as he examined it to his colleague. The total amount was found to be as Monsieur Noirtier had stated. "'It is all as he has said.' it is very evident that the mind still retains its full force and vigour then turning towards the paralytic he said you possess then nine hundred thousand francs of capital which according to the manner in which you have invested it ought to bring in an income of about forty thousand livres yes to whom do you desire to leave this fortune oh said madame de villefort there is not much doubt on that subject monsieur noirtier tenderly loves his granddaughter mademoiselle de villefort it is she who has nursed and tended him for six years and has by her devoted attention fully secured the affection i had almost said the gratitude of her grandfather and it is but just that she should reap the fruit of her devotion the eye of noirtier clearly showed by its expression that he was not deceived by the false assent given by madame de villefort's words and manner to the motives which she supposed him to entertain it is then to mademoiselle valentine de villefort that you leave these nine hundred thousand francs demanded the notary thinking he had only to insert this clause but waiting first for the assent of noirtier which it was necessary should be given before all the witnesses of this singular scene Valentine, when her name was made the subject of discussion, had stepped back to escape unpleasant observation. Her eyes were cast down, and she was crying. The old man looked at her for an instant, with an expression of the deepest tenderness. Then, turning towards the notary, he significantly winked his eye in token of dissent. "'What?' said the notary. "'Do you not intend?' making mademoiselle valentine de villefort your residuary legatee no you are not making any mistake are you said the notary you really mean to declare that such is not your intention no repeated noirtier no valentine raised her head struck dumb with astonishment it was not so much the conviction that she was disinherited that caused her grief, but her total inability to account for the feelings which had provoked her grandfather to such an act. But Noirtier looked at her with so much affectionate tenderness that she exclaimed, "'Oh, Grandpapa, I see now that it is only your fortune of which you deprive me. You still leave me the love which I have always enjoyed.' "'Ah, yes, most assuredly.' said the eyes of the paralytic 
for he closed them with an expression which valentine could not mistake thank you thank you murmured she the old man's declaration that valentine was not the destined inheritor of his fortune had excited the hopes of madame de villefort she gradually approached the invalid and said then doubtless dear monsieur noirtier you intend leaving your fortune to your grandson edouard de villefort the winking of the eyes which answered this speech was most decided and terrible and expressed a feeling almost amounting to hatred no said the notary then perhaps it is to your son monsieur de villefort no the two notaries looked at each other in mute astonishment and inquiry as to what were the real intentions of the testator villefort and his wife both grew red one from shame the other from anger what have we all done then dear grandpapa said valentine you no longer seem to love any of us the old man's eyes passed rapidly from villefort and his wife and rested on valentine with a look of unutterable fondness well said she if you love me grandpapa try and bring that love to bear upon your actions at this present moment you know me well enough to be quite sure that i have never thought of your fortune besides they say i am already rich in right of my mother too rich even explain yourself then noirtier fixed his intelligent eyes on valentine's hand my hand said she yes her hand exclaimed everyone oh gentlemen you see it is all useless and that my father's mind is really impaired said villefort ah cried valentine suddenly i understand it is my marriage you mean is it not dear grandpapa yes 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 signed the paralytic casting on valentine a look of joyful gratitude for having guessed his meaning you are angry with us all on account of this marriage are you not yes really this is too absurd said villefort excuse me sir replied the notary on the contrary the meaning of monsieur noirtier is quite evident to me and i can quite easily connect the train of ideas passing in his mind you do not wish me to marry monsieur franz d'epinay observed valentine i do not wish it said the eye of her grandfather and you disinherit your granddaughter continued the notary because she has contracted an engagement contrary to your wishes yes so that but for this marriage she would have been your heir yes there was a profound silence the two notaries were holding a consultation as to the best means of proceeding with the affair valentine was looking at her grandfather with a smile of intense gratitude and villefort was biting his lips with vexation while madame de villefort could not succeed in repressing an inward feeling of joy which in spite of herself appeared in her whole countenance but said villefort who was the first to break the silence i consider that i am the best judge of the propriety of the marriage in question i am the only person possessing the right to dispose of my daughter's hand it is my wish that she should marry monsieur franz d'epinay and she shall marry him valentine sank weeping into a chair sir 
said the notary how do you intend disposing of your fortune in case mademoiselle de villefort still determines on marrying monsieur france the old man gave no answer you will of course dispose of it in some other way yes in favor of some member of your family no do you intend devoting it to charitable purposes then pursued the notary yes but said the notary you are aware that the law does not allow a son to be entirely deprived of his patrimony yes you only intend then to dispose of that part of your fortune which the law allows you to subtract from the inheritance of your son noirtier made no answer do you still wish to dispose of all yes but they will contest the will after your death no my father knows me replied villefort he is quite sure that his wishes will be held sacred by me besides he understands that in my position i cannot plead against the poor the eye of noirtier beamed with triumph what do you decide on sir asked the notary of villefort nothing sir it is a resolution which my father has taken and i know he never alters his mind i am quite resigned these nine hundred thousand francs will go out of the family in order to enrich some hospital but it is ridiculous thus to yield to the caprice of an old man and i shall therefore act according to my conscience having said this villefort quitted the room with his wife leaving his father at liberty to do as he pleased the same day the will was made the witnesses were brought it was approved by the old man sealed in the presence of all and given in charge to monsieur deschamps the family notary end of chapter 59